0: Well, welcome in, everyone, to the 12 o'clock hour. Chris Alberta, happy to fill in. Paul is a little bit under the weather, and I guess I'm, that puts me over the weather to a touch. But today, we have quite a bit of encouraging stuff on the agenda. Last week when I was in, we had a lot of hearty conversations about the UAW. In fact, we had a couple of segments in a row where just a, a wonderful group of people had called. I, I really did plead with everyone to call in. And give us the perspective from the UAW side. If you, they were a worker that had been sidelined on the picket lines making 500 bucks a week, was there a lot of growing frustration? What was the real thought process? I, I think we often find ourselves in a, a bit of an echo chamber of our own making in that regard and what we read. And it was nice to hear from some people. In fact, the most interesting call we got was from a fella who was a Ford guy, and he said, geez, I'm just... I'm torn all the time. I believe in the UAW. I think that they they do are they are looking out for us, and I'm looking forward to this thing being over. But I'm starting to get very angry at how they are demonizing Ford. And you know, if somebody asked him at a at a family barbecue, "Oh yeah, who do you work for?" He'd say, "I work for Ford. I build Mustangs." He wouldn't say I work for the UAW. He's proud to be a 25, 26 year, I think he said Ford employee. So he was torn, and now this looks like. Dave Rigger, it's all coming to an end. Uh, Probably in the next three to five weeks, that deal gets ratified, assuming that there's no big surprises. A lot of people go back to work, and that is really, really good news for the state of Michigan, not only for the workers, but for the economy.
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, uh, All deals, tend to deals with all three of the big three and uh, just waiting on all of the deals to get ratified. And um, I would assume that everybody got what they wanted, at least we'll use the UAW.
0: And we're going to talk to uh, Patrick Anderson from Anderson Economic later in the hour, and he's going to fill us in a little bit on on what the outlook is for the economy and what the real toll has been so far and what the expectations are going to be on a bounce back. And I have some interesting questions for him because I think many of us, myself included, who I work in finance, I still don't know sometimes when they – they mentioned the economic impact. How far does that go? Are we talking, you know, about the Michigan economy? Are we talking about the retail economy? At what point does that stop? I mean, how far do you travel to just to find pennies that may need to be picked up? I think it's kind of a cool conversation. On a, on, a, on a brighter note, though, perhaps the brightest of the day, the Lions had a heck of a game last night.
1: Nice win for the Lions yesterday. Uh you got to be able to win the games that you're supposed to win even when you're not necessarily scoring in the red zone or turning the ball over and they still were able to do that. Sure. So that uh that's the sign of
0: a that's the sign of a good team. Yeah, and we got a heck of a nice town in many ways we've been taken for granted by the sports world for so long. I was at the the game last night with two of my sons and my oldest daughter sat with a couple of the the J, WJR family as it were. And that place was on fire. They did a really neat job lighting up the stadium with these bracelets that were, I think, electronically controlled. So they kind of lit to the beat of the music. And when they turned down the lights and the players were introduced, it was raucous in there and just a whole lot of fun. Everyone was kind. You know, you bump into some people accidentally. There's 130,000 people waiting to use the restroom at the same time. It was great. You no, know, I didn't feel scared one bit in terms of the, you know, sometimes when you get into an environment like that, and I've been in a few of them. In fact, you remember years and years ago when Ron Artest jumped out of the stands with the scrap with Ben Wallace. Were you there? I was about five rows from that. Really? So you were at the Malice at the Palace? Yeah, it's was the Malice wow. at the Palace. And my wife was very pregnant at the time. Really? I can't, I don't remember the last time as a grown man I felt that. Completely overwhelmed by this scenario, there was nowhere to run it couldn 't really get involved and it was a very tense feeling to be in a confined space, even though the, you know the palace is a gigantic place but it, for something about Ford Field and the way they 've put it together and the way everyone behaves makes it feel very safe and inclusive, and even the Raiders fans that were barking and yelling and having a good time, everyone was hooting and hollering with them so a heck of a night, good win for the lions. And the Pistons don't look too shabby either. We could have a nice little winter set up for ourselves here.
1: I'll tell you what, the Red Wings, they started off very hot. They've cooled a little. The Pistons look good with Cade back. Uh, Lions are playing well. Tigers, I think next year um, when they get some of their pitching back, some of their, uh, you know, if they make some off-season moves, although I, I did hear they're not going to be really big buyers. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, even the Tigers, um, they finished, I think, in second place Yeah, uh, this year. So and I don't,
0: I don't want to let sports dominate the, the more important things on our agenda. But, you know, today is the trade deadline, too. So the, if the Lions want to pull uh, a move to really maybe put that last piece or two in place to try and give them a big push, much like Rasheed Wallace came into the 2004 Pistons and was that final cog that just made everything click. We'll know today by four p.m. because that's the deadline.
1: Correct. Um, they've already had some moves uh, being made uh, this morning, uh, so. Not we'll the see. Lions. You mean within uh, the league? The league. The league yeah. made some moves. Uh, we'll see if the. Uh, is is you know what in the NFL it's not, it's not kind of like the trade deadline. It's not like free agency in the NFL. Like when free agency opens at the before the season and and it's like it goes nuts. Um, but the to a trade deadline, um, it's not, or it's not like the like in hockey where the, the Red Wings used to make all those big moves before yeah. uh, the salary cap kind of took over. So we'll see what well, happens. Gives um, us
0: uh, something to fight for yeah, and look forward for sure. to, and, and like you Definitely. always say, enjoy the ride. You want know more good news, Dave? Sure. Gas apparently is the cheapest it's been uh, since essentially the end of the last recession, on on a rolling average basis, three dollars and thirty one cents per gallon in Michigan. And later in the show, I think in the second hour, we'll have Patrick DeHanan, who's the, the head of petroleum analysis from, from the Gas Buddy clan. And I, I think that's a really interesting piece of news. I mean, we talked for months about how can how could Biden's people let the gas, it's not really Biden's fault in particular, but it certainly doesn't help the economic policy. But now it's come way back down in the midst of a Middle East crisis. So it's pretty interesting. I also wonder how many people, when we base that that fuel cost on 87-octane regular unleaded fuel in an age of fuel-injected cars, which primarily run off 91-octane plus, what percentage of the gas is actually the cheap stuff? Because I put premium in my cars because I'm afraid, frankly, if I don't, I could whack out the warranty or something goofy. And I think there's more to that conversation so I'm going to ask Patrick that when he makes his way on.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting discussion because we were talking about it. Like I've never had a car that I've put premium in. Everything's been regular, but I have worked with people who have higher end cars, yeah. and they only would put premium in. Yeah. So I'm not really sure if, um, with if you have a more expensive car, do you have to put? Is, does the is there a big difference in performance? And maybe the longevity of the car between premium and regular? Well, I, that I don't octane
0: know. rating is really, the, is in an essence, another way of saying that would be how hot does this this fuel burn? And if it's going through the spark plugs and in the injectors and not burning hot enough, you get a lot of crud stuck in there. And that can make the mileage worse. So You might actually lose by trying to save in the first place. Although I will tell you something cute. There was a nice gal, pretty gal in front of me at the gas station the other day. And she's making small talk with the, with the fella next to her while we're all waiting. And the guy mentioned something about gas prices. He said, well, I don't really care about the gas prices. It doesn't affect me. I only put $20 in when I come to the gas station anyway. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't know if that's a public education uh, problem that needs to be discussed at a later time. But she seemed nice enough. I, she might have just goofed. So, listen, after the break, Jonathan Savage is going to join... And bring us up to speed on Israel. Um, with all the good news today, that's one black mark on the record. I think that that situation is not getting any better. It's, it's certainly gruesome, and there's a lot to be said. So we'll be back in just a few minutes with Jonathan. We'll get into that. We're always willing to take calls today, 800-859-0957, back in just a few. Well, perhaps I was remiss in not remembering to say happy Halloween, everybody. October 31st is here. Halloween is today, and I, I apparently I'm going as a radio host. And one of the most unfortunate things I've had to do behind this microphone in the last uh, month or so is get into this Israel conflict. On the line with us is Jonathan Savage, Fox News correspondent, WJR contributor. Jonathan, this situation seems to just get worse and worse. It seems like there's been some small victories here and there uh, on, on Israel's side, capturing some major players and, and destroying some 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 bases and pain points, but the humanitarian side of this seems to be constantly getting worse. Give us a, a picture of what it's starting to look like over there, and bring us up to speed.
2: Yes, the World Health Organization today, Chris, is warning of an imminent public health catastrophe in Gaza. At the start of this war, after the October 7th massacres, Israel told Palestinians, go south, leave, if you can, the northern part of the Gaza Strip, because that is where we will focus, Israel said, our efforts. Well, they have bombarded the northern part, but also other parts of the Gaza Strip too. And it, on top of that, the mass displacement, the the homelessness, the damage to water and sanitation infrastructure, the lack of any food or water or medical supplies getting into the territory, um, save for relatively few um, deliveries from aid trucks through Egypt um, has all led to uh, what is being described at the UN as a a life and death situation. Um, Calls for a ceasefire rejected by Israel, uh, whose Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says this is a time for war. He, of course, sees Hamas um, and its operation as an existential threat To the Israeli state, that, of course, magnified by the killing of over 1,400 people on October 7th.
0: Yes, and now the better part of 10,000 have died, many of which are are, are children, which is always sad Mm. to hear. the, The water in particular seems to be a major role in this humanitarian problem. Jonathan, if they wanted to turn back on the water, is there any indication of how quickly that could be restored?
2: It's really impossible to tell, um, partly because so much of Gaza is rubble at the moment. Uh, it's not very easy to, to figure out what is required. Um, and there's a, also an information vacuum. Not much information is getting in and out. There are charities and UN agencies working there. Um, but to sort of emphasize just how significant that the water shortage is, they say that uh, water output is just at 5% of normal levels which means that child death due to dehydration um, is considered by the UN Children's Agency to be a growing threat. On the subject of of children, um, the the UN says about 940 children are reported missing at the moment in Gaza, with some thought to be stuck beneath the rubble.
0: So in the thought, I guess I can't quantify this, but it certainly seems as though cutting off resources, including water to Gaza, in part was the a tool of dissuasion, trying to get people to leave, and they succeeded to the degree that what about a million people or so are thought to have have fled. But how many are left? Is that six, seven, h- eight hundred thousand.
2: Well, they, they they fled northern Gaza, but they're still in Gaza. They can't leave the territory. Um, there's about six or seven hundred thousand in UN um, camps at the moment, living in tents. Others are living in hospital hallways. Uh, But in the the northern part of Gaza, which was the the area that Israel said it was going to target, many people feel that they can't leave. Maybe they don't have the the vehicles, maybe they don't have the mobility, and maybe they're just worried about leaving their homes and not being able to get back to them. Um, And that is leading to a very dangerous situation, which has come to fruition in the last couple of hours. We're hearing news from the Jabalia refugee camp in northern Gaza, where an explosion Um, has reportedly killed up to 50 people. Uh, Hamas officials are blaming an Israeli airstrike, but the Israeli Defense Force has yet to comment on that. There are images coming to us, as I speak, from Reuters um, and the AFP news agency um, showing bodies being carried out and the refugee camp uh, reduced from from quite a number of significant structures to to little more than rubble.
0: Yeah, And now we're in the same article, too, that you're commenting on. Uh, there was notes that uh, some of the strikes, some of the airstrikes in particular, are getting dangerously close to these hospitals that have served as kind of refugee camps for those people, too. As the world, From the worldview standpoint, are we starting to see an attitude shift a little bit towards the humanitarian side more than even those folks that really pledged a lot of allegiance to Israel in terms of their, their right and, and the obligation morally to fight back and and retain the moral high ground? Even Obama came out last week and said that this may backfire on you if you don't pay attention to the humanitarian side. Are we starting to see the attitude shift a little bit to say enough is enough, there's innocence being hurt?
2: I think concern is, is growing, absolutely. Um, even actually at the start, when you had the likes of, of President Joe Biden, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak of the UK, heading to uh, Jerusalem to, to talk to and stand shoulder to shoulder with Prime Minister Netanyahu. Um, they did say, firstly, Israel has a right to defend itself, but behind closed doors, they were talking about the importance of trying to safeguard uh, civilians. Um, and I think it was President Biden himself who said, look, after 9 the United States went for revenge, went for vengeance, um, but did some things that now the U.S. in his view regrets. He urged Benjamin Netanyahu not to do that. Now, if we've seen some videos come out of Gaza uh, with people um, attending funerals, um, bodies being carried through the, the streets uh, on on sort of animal drawn carts, um, and as well as, as the grief, there is anger, and people may remember. Uh, very clearly what's happening these weeks. And I think people are, are urging Israel, um, and I think what President Biden may have been going at there, is, look, do not create more enemies in trying to rid yourself of your greatest enemy.
0: Yeah, and that's got to be a very tricky balance. He's already under fire for letting, in some ways, maybe letting this happen in the first place, being um, you know, not aware of the fact that this was an imminent threat, and, and certainly there's going to be some reckoning for that down the line. But as you look at this thing now, there's a tremendous amount of pressure on him to figure out the proper balance. And are we to also then trust Hamas's numbers? Some of the reports that are in the, in the several thousand category in terms of innocents and children dead. We've seen other reports that a week later said that this is a severe overestimation. Now, clearly, whether it's 500 dead or 3,000 dead is too many dead. That's a very sad thing to think about. But how is Hamas to be trusted in this regard when it comes to reporting?
2: It's really hard to say, Chris, isn't it? I mean, we, we have very little independent verification of these numbers. The the Hamas-run health ministry, which says more than 8,500 people killed, um, and over 3,500 of them, they tell us, are children. Um, we can say that the charity Save the Children believes that more kids have been killed in Gaza in the last three and a half weeks than in all the world's conflict zones combined since 2019. Um so there's, there's it's not just the, the health ministry there. Also we have we have sources from people working in hospitals who aren't necessarily affiliated with Hamas. There are international bodies which operate uh, hospitals in Gaza, um an Indonesian hospital and in and, and a Turkish hospital, for example. Um so there there's various figures coming to us. Um but I think you know, whether or not you believe any individual numbers, you only have to look at the pictures. To see that there must be a great number of casualties and a great deal of devastation. And the rebuilding of Gaza, what comes after this war, is currently very difficult to see and will need a great deal of international focus.
0: Okay. Jonathan, last question for you, and this may be subjective enough where you may not have or want to to reply to it. But certainly I've seen quite a few uh, very pro-Israel things, podcasts and, and some white papers that suggest that Hamas has regularly um, encouraged some families in, in Gaza to stay there and often use the, the women and children as, quote-unquote, human shields, and that is part of the propagandizing of this on, on their side. Have we really seen that there's any truth to that? Do they actually encourage people or forbid them to leave if they want to fight the holy war?
2: Um, Well, there are certainly accusations that Hamas blocked roads to try and stop people from going south at certain points, although clearly a great number of people did manage to go south from Gaza City. But one thing we absolutely can say with certainty is that on October 7th, Hamas did not just kill 1,400 people in Israel. They took at least 239 hostages. They took them back across um, the the boundary into Gaza itself, uh, and that is... Why Gaza, is, uh, Hamas is being accused of weaponizing individuals and using them at the very least as human shields. Sure.
0: Well, Jonathan, thanks for your expertise in this. You're, you're fabulous, as always, keeping up on the story. It's 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 it gets sadder and sadder every time I sit behind the mic. It's it's not getting any better. Is there any any silver lining in any of this that you can see on the near horizon? Any signs of encouragement or hope?
2: I wish I could tell you there was. Um, Benjamin Netanyahu says to te- says to expect a long war. Um, this is the second phase, he says, of what will be a long war. Um, I think we have to look for um, whether or not any further aid is going to be allowed into into southern Gaza. Um, I think a little over 120 trucks have gone in so far since the, the 17th. Uh, before the, the war, it was 500 trucks a mm. day going through, so still very little. Yes.
0: Jonathan, thanks, as always, how lucky we are and how blessed we are as Americans right now to have peace in our home soil. Sad story. We'll continue to follow it. Be back in just a few with Patrick Anderson to talk about the UAW and the economic impact. Well, okay, moving on from Israel, a sad, sad story. Some some bright things on the horizon, some good news for us here in Michigan and, and in other parts of the country, too, UAW. Now, all three, Stellantis, Ford, and um, General Motors, all kind of shaking hands over a tentative agreement. We're going to wait now a few weeks, if not more, for ratification of this deal. But a whole lot of people will be going back to work, not making $500 a week. They can start getting full pay again. They can start spending on their kids for Christmas and doing those home repairs and shopping for normal groceries and maybe not eating ramen noodles, whatever it might be. But when we talk about the economics of this, even as a finance guy, I find myself in a fuzzy area. So we, as usual, call on Patrick Anderson, the principal and CEO of Anderson Economic Group. And Patrick, thanks for joining. Can you give us a, an overall picture of perhaps whether or not we have dodged a bullet economically? Certainly, we might have hit a tipping point pretty soon had this continued.
3: We didn't dodge a bullet. Uh, no, no, no two ways around that. This was a very expensive strike. Uh, The stakes were high. Uh, There were a highly motivated UAW leadership and a highly motivated UAW membership too. remember the UAW membership strongly endorsed uh, a strike uh, and they were clearly supportive of it. So there was a it was an expensive strike, Uh, as you noted, we still are expecting a ratification vote so it's not technically over until that occurs uh, three times but Mm -hmm. It was a very expensive strike. Our estimates were that it cost $9.3 billion through the first five weeks. A half billion of this is wages lost to UAW members. So it was no two ways around it expensive. Uh, and it is definitely something that's going to hurt Michigan and is hurting it right now.
0: And, and principally, it's hurting Michigan more than other spots in the country, of course. How Where does that stop and start in terms of, kind of the economic tabulation on the money loss, I and mean, you said half of it about was was wages. How far does that trickle go down before you really can't measure it anymore to surrounding businesses and, and second and third tier suppliers, so on and so forth?
3: Our estimates are generally pretty conservative. We're not using, uh, which you sometimes see, a, a big multiplier, and we're not really even trying to get ripple effects. We're trying to get the direct effects within the industry, so... The estimates we have, that $9 billion through five weeks, that is wages lost to people who work at auto plans, wages lost to people who work at suppliers, lost earnings to people that own the supplier companies, many of whom which are small businesses,
2: mm-hmm. money
3: that's lost by the automakers and the suppliers. Uh, those are all real losses. Uh, and yeah, it's if you tried to turn it into GDP, it's definitely larger than that. But if you just look at the industry itself, People who were working in it—it's definitely a very costly strike.
0: Yeah, and the ratification process—and I know this is not necessarily your your area so much as a, as the economic impact—but if that were to if that were to all wrap up in the next handful of weeks, uh, how soon can can that effect start to really get nullified? Are we are we bounced back essentially by the new year in terms of getting things back on track, or is there kind of a lingering effect that goes on for some period of months?
3: Uh, I'm afraid that this uh, has taken a lot of income out of a lot of households, especially in Michigan. As a a rule of thumb, I I expect about 30% of the cost of the strike to be in in our state and a substantial portion of it in Northern Ohio and in Indiana and in Illinois right next to us. So uh, that money is gone. And it's it's not helpful to think that we're just going to turn around and go on forward, which is... What a lot you see a lot of Wall Street type and analysts thinking it's like one quarter we lost some earnings and then nothing happened. No, a lot happened. Now I will say that, that it is uh, a tentative agreement here with, as uh, President John Fein of the UAW had said, is lucrative to the workers. There are very large wage increases, substantial additional increases, and there's been some decisions made at the automakers that are, have long-term consequences only some of which we've uh, you know, been announced. But let me just point out, pausing the Marshall plant, maybe we don't build the Marshall plant, uh, pausing, canceling, postponing, or delaying the uh, electric Silverado at Orion. Uh, Stellantis has canceled a bunch of activities, and there's more out there that, that haven't been announced yet. So there's definitely consequences to the strike and uh, also to some of the decisions that the automakers were forced to make, some of which perhaps they should have made earlier related to EVs, but which nonetheless, the strike forced them to make.
0: Yeah. One of the fears that I heard from callers in the last few weeks and certainly has been talked about amongst my group of friends is is with these new deals, if they, if they were to strap the companies hard enough. Or are, we, are we going to see a reflection of that that new embedded cost in the sticker price of these vehicles as we go to buy them? Is there any kind of measurement that you're able to put on that? Um, how soon does something that, like that really occur? And on a percentage basis, how much does that move the needle on the price of a car?
3: Right now, we already have cars that are have an average transaction price of well over $40,000. It even briefly touched $50,000 down a bit. And electric vehicles are even more than that. Mm-hmm. That's pricing out a lot of customers for what's our signature product uh, for for the state of Michigan. Now, the auto industry still is our anchor industry. We export that product to the rest of the country and the rest of the world. And uh, when that product gets really expensive, some of our customers don't buy it. And, and that's a serious concern. It won't take long on that. You already see the uh, the automakers and uh, notably Ford cutting the price of the F-150 Lightning by $10,000 mm-hmm. uh, and other other aspects that are going on that are recognizing customers saying sticker shock, customers starting to walk away from the product, and when you make it more expensive, uh, certainly that doesn't help. That's not to say that at a, a wage increase wasn't deserved and expected by a lot of workers. You had to expect that, uh, right. and I said that right up front. We're definitely... Going to have to expect a wage increase because workers didn't cause the inflation, uh, but it it is a concern that we are uh, this kind of contract and the cost of the strike is going to make it too expensive to build some cars in the United States.
0: Patrick, in terms of the the financial fragility of these companies now, the big three after this agreement, I mean, we go back basically six weeks. A lot of the initial resistance from them that we saw on television and the news was the the ceos of the big three saying essentially the same thing we can only give so much we we have to be able to retain a certain margin of profit that you could drive us into bankruptcy as these new deals get adopted naturally some of it gets embedded into the price of the vehicle but anything that they choose to absorb that starts to diminish their margin Does that put them in a very fragile position should we run into another recessionary cycle like a 2008 where they just can't, it's not even a bend, it's just a break at that point?
3: This is something that I warned about at the beginning. Uh, The goal here isn't to avoid a strike or to get a particular wage increase. The goal is to make sure that workers are paid fairly and that you can get through the next recession and that you can compete in the market. Uh, I have to remind folks that uh, GM, Ford, and Stellantis aren't the only people making cars, even in the United States. Sure, We have lots of competitors, Tesla, Toyota, Honda, Hyundai making cars in the United States of America, Volkswagen making cars in the United States of America, uh, and and good vehicles, and uh, they're being sold and serviced here, and we got people working on those here right in the state of Michigan. And customers have those choices, and they don't have to buy a a vehicle that's produced in a UAW plant. And that's something that is definitely going to be, uh, given the, the size of the contract and the and the cost sure. of the strike, it is something that's going to be taken into account in the coming years.
0: Yeah, and that may close the gap, too, in some of the pricing discrepancy. The divergence between those two prices may close a little bit and, and put some in a position where that – little BMW or that Volkswagen or that Hyundai becomes even more attractive, right?
3: Uh, I definitely, you look out there remember what Bill Ford said. Uh, he, he was saying about the strike and, and saying our competitors are, are enjoying this. I mean, he was pointing out that, that uh, the UAW and the automakers here should be partners. And in terms of selling these products to Americans and to people in other countries, and whether they want to call themselves partners or not, they certainly don't want to call each other enemy. Uh, which is, I think, one of the, the real damaging aspects of the strike was the rhetoric that referred to the automakers as the enemy. I, I don't think that's helpful. But I mean, the auto the auto companies have agreed now. The auto workers have a big wage increase, a lucrative contract. Clearly, the UAW has been successful. In fact, extraordinarily successful in getting what they wanted in this in their bargaining. Uh, And now we're going to need to make some decisions in the auto industry because uh, the cost of the strike and the cost of the contract will mean that some products won't be economically feasible.
0: Yeah. So in the beginning of our conversation, um, Patrick, and we do really appreciate you coming on and all throughout Mm -hmm. this, your your numbers have been super pertinent to the conversations we've been having that my dodged a bullet comment, really. Maybe we didn't dodge a bullet, but we might have dodged a cannonball had this thing gone on th- through the holidays and through Christmas time.
3: Yeah. Maybe we dodged the cannonball, but uh, we definitely took some collateral damage here. I don't want anybody to think that, yeah, it's you know, it was uh rah, rah. We had a bad strike and, sure. and now we're all back to it. Nothing happened. No things happen.
4: Yeah. We so- already
3: have products that are canceled or postponed. There are products that won't be built in the United States uh, because of the result of this. And also the changes in the market. I mean, This happened to occur also when you started to see unavoidable evidence that customers were drawing a line on some of the pricier products, such as some of the EVs. So you put that together, and there's consequences.
0: Absolutely. Patrick Anderson, thanks for joining. We're glad this thing has come to a close, but certainly, as you put, without uh, (laughs) without a lot of collateral damage felt by, by all in the Michigan economy. We'll be back in just a little bit with uh, Miss Marie Osborne with a very interesting story about the Oxford shooting back in just a few minutes. Well, as we close out the 12 o'clock hour, a sad story in in a detailed 572 page report. A third party has concluded that the Oxford high school shooting nearly three years ago could have been prevented with proper training. And it would have been further helped if the better guidelines had been in place. WGR senior news analyst Marie Osborne is here with some of the details from that report.
5: Hi, Chris. This study was conducted by Guidepost Solutions. And at the core, it found that the shooter, Ethan Cum- Crumley, was not identified as a threat because authorities at Oxford High School had failed to recognize that his statements, his conduct, and his drawings suggested that they could he could be a physical harm to the school. Guidepost was hired to do this report in May of last year after intense public pressure. It found that at every level, the district failed to provide safe, secure environment for students. The report, though, did not find any intention or callousness or wanton indifference, but did note failure and responsibility by omission. The report said too often responsibility was shifted elsewhere or even denied. The report named many individuals that bore most of the blame for failing to be proactive in handling the shooter. First and foremost, investigators found that the former superintendent, Tim Thorne, was to blame, then two assistant superintendents, a counselor, a dean of students, and the Oxford High School principal. Guideposts singling out the former superintendent Thorne and his assistants and the school board for most of the blame for failing to have a threat assessment guideline in place. The lack of these guidelines also falls at the feet of the school board, according to the report. The board authorized the superintendent to create the guidelines. They never checked, though, to make sure that they were actually implemented. The board also had uh, not adopted a suicide prevention policy at the time of the shooting. That policy is important, they say, because more than three-quarters of school shooters in the United States had previously expressed suicidal thoughts, according to the investigators. And one last thing, Chris. Members in the investigative team will visit the high school on Thursday. They plan to discuss this report in three sessions at one thirty three thirty and six thirty. And you can imagine this will be a very
0: intense uh group of meetings. Yeah. Marie, who were those meetings with?
5: Uh are you talking about the meetings on Thursday?
0: Yeah, with the with guideposts the coming in with the public people. Yeah. So at different yeah. sessions where parents can come in and hear what yeah. they have to say.
5: Yeah. Yeah. How right. how
0: familiar are you or are we with Guidepost Solutions? Is that a Michigan company? Oh.
5: Um, we've had, uh, uh, I think it was Andy arena. we had on the air talking about how they are an excellent company to use and that they have a great reputation. They're very thorough. They are expensive, but well worth it according to him.
0: Yeah. So w- my first thought with this, and I'd love to, to learn your thoughts too, is, you know, with kids in high school, myself every time there's a story like this, not only is it heartbreaking, but it's a real, an eye opener, especially in a community like Oxford, which is fairly kind of what I would call mass affluent. It's not an area that you expect to see one of those stories, certainly not a, a harbinger of, of dangerous, you know, folks and kids in an area that's kind of rough to begin with. And maybe that's an overstatement or maybe too generalized but I wonder if Guidepost went into all the other schools, you know, where I'm at, Livingston County and different parts of Oakland County, would they find the same thing across the board? Is this a wake-up call to all schools that they're probably underprepared?
5: Well, I, you know, I don't know what would happen if they went into any particular school district. But I think if I was a parent with high school kids or in school right now, I would look at this and I'd be asking questions of the uh, Principals of my kids' schools and also the school board saying, hey, do we have this kind of thing in place? And if we do, what does it look like? And when was the last time it was visited? Or uh, uh, who approved this? I think this is definitely something that people need to be asking and need to be looking at. Um, the one of the things that Guidepost said here was that um, the nobody, no one took responsibility for this. They kept passing it on to one uh, to another person or another entity, and therefore no one uh, got the job done.
0: Wow! And Marie, in the report, was there anything uh, specific that wasn't so private in nature? It, it alluded to perhaps how troubled ethan was i mean that's a if you're reading between the tea leaves as a high school counselor and you've never really dealt with that before you might just not know i mean it's certainly don't want to take any of the blame away from those people but i can imagine feeling awfully awfully conflicted there's a lot of troubled kids a lot of anxiety a lot of depression a lot of moroseness you know at that age anyway does the report try to quantify anyhow things that should have absolutely jumped off the page like hey this kid Is not only a threat to others but to himself
5: well we yeah i mean i think that that's exactly what this did because they flat out said that the school failed to recognize that ethan crumley had made statements he had conduct that was troubling and he had drawings that suggested he could be a physical harm to the school that these things were present and no one seemed to really recognize them or if they did They did not know what to do next. In other words, the plan, the blueprint was not in place.
0: Hmm. I'll tell you, if my, and I remember, you know, you have kids that had gone through high school and college too. If Mm -hmm. someone came to me and said, listen, for an extra $500 a year in your tax bill for the next few years as an assessment, we will put self-locking doors and metal detectors at every entrance to the school, I would say, sign me up. I'll pay double. I can't believe with the surplus that, that Michigan has had as a state post-COVID with some of the uh, federal award money that they didn't really focus an effort on to bolstering this particular problem. Because good grief, how can you take a gun into school in today's day and age? We have metal detectors outside of Seven Eleven. Mm-hmm.
5: Well, and then, uh, you know, a lot of people worry about what kind of message that sends. Uh, to to students who come in the door, and I know you can argue about that, both sides, but that is a concern, an argument that you often hear. But and in this particular case, the gun was in this student's backpack, mm-hmm. and no one opened that backpack to look in there to see if what was in there, and that um, was a pretty big failure. And again, though, th- no, this there wasn't training here. There wasn't a uh, an uh, training or a blueprint written out as to what you had to do you got a troubled kid in front of you here's what you have to do one two three apparently that's not what happened here
0: yeah which is a shame and i i would you know as we get into the next um, few segments and we have some time for open calls i'd love to hear from you at 800-859-0957 if you would be in favor of a widespread broad policy on gun prevention in the schools I'd like to hear from you because I think, Marie, what you, you hit the nail on the head. What kind of message does that send? But I think at some point we have to be honest and say we have to care more about people's lives than protecting people's feelings.
5: Yes, I, I, I completely agree. I'm just, I'm pointing that out because that's what I often hear from yeah, folks. I agree. You know, and, and, and I think, we, you know, listening to each other is very, very helpful. But ultimately, we need to protect our children. It just has to stop.
0: Indeed. Thanks for the update, Marie. Thank you. We'll be back at the turn of the hour. Open to phone calls, 800 We'll talk to you soon. Welcome back in. Rolling into the 1 o'clock hour. Lively last hour. Some good topics, some encouraging stuff. UAW. Uh, coming to a deal, the economic impact of that, uh, Marie just filled us in on the very, very long report from Oxford High School and the shooting that took place just about three years ago with four students killed and uh, possibly what could have been done to prevent it. That that begets a whole larger conversation about what we could be doing as a society to prevent some of these things. And uh, I certainly would like to hear from you, not only on that, but on some of the college campus rallies, the pro-Palestinian things that are starting to turn violent in many cases and what your thoughts are. 800 957 Let's go out to the phones. JT in Detroit. What's happening, my friend?
6: Hey, good afternoon, and thank you for having me on. Yes, sir. I just wanted to weigh in on the issue of public school safety. Uh, I know uh, DPS, Detroit Public Schools, for example, has its own police force, as I would imagine many other major urban school districts do, but I don't know how they deploy their police officers uh, in the schools if they do at all, but perhaps we should be looking at that in terms of... Uh, Taxing and raising taxes to install other safety related measures. I, for one, would be in favor of that. But I also know that there are teachers who are desirous of and capable of being armed. I think arming teachers ought to be looked at. And then finally, public safety officers typically retire between 20 and 25 years of service. So a lot of them retire when they're in their 40s still. Uh, Maybe we could look at uh, employing them because a lot of the retirees. Go on to other careers, maybe we look at employing them as uh, public safety officers within the schools.
0: Yeah, JT, that's that, that last point especially, uh, they're all good points you made. I think that last point um, has, has a place in my heart. I actually have two clients who are retired um, police. Uh, one in particular was a captain, one was a joint FBI task force person. Both of them retired basically in their very early 50s and went on to work for private schools as a security official and i'm not sure if jt stay on the line or not jt's still there pal yes i am so i think that point is a good one because you do have capable people who still are are very very aware of their surroundings you're not i think sometimes that conversation is am i going to get a a bumbling old guy who's you know in his 60s and he's going to sit there on the chair and take a nap you know while the school is under duress i don't think that's the case so that's a very good point on your part and i you know like i said to marie where, where my kids go to school in a fairly affluent community in, in Livingston County, there's a sheriff in the school all day long at both schools. Is that a measure that every school has? I don't know. I know you're right about the Detroit system, but why do I walk into a Lions game or a, a Pistons game or to any of the big retailer places, and they have metal detector systems there? They're not that expensive. Paul W. and I talked about this a few years ago. We started We were talking about doing a potential fundraiser um, that would kind of be a joint venture between corporations for a Michigan tax credit and the state of Michigan and kind of demand that all these systems had some kind of way of you know, having a system that would go off if you were bringing a metal object in your, in your backpack. Now, are the logistics of that impossible? I don't know. But I'm not too concerned about the message it sends the kids other than, hey, you're probably going to be safe today. Would you agree with that?
6: that's a great message to send. But in addition to the metal detector, for example, you need a, a, a physical body, a, a human yeah. to monitor to monitor any alarm that trips. But yeah, I think the problem uh, certainly is, is in need of attention and can be addressed effectively.
0: Yeah. Well said JT. Thanks for the call. Dave Rieger. I don't know about you, but the the conversation that has swirled around for years about potentially arming our teachers in the public schools I'm not sure about that one. I know JT makes the point that there are certainly capable and willing um teachers that would do that. But I, I, I do know that the majority, and you know, fifty-one percent is a majority, actually fifty point zero one percent is a majority, but the overwhelming majority of our teachers in Michigan are female. And I know that in general, most females are less comfortable carrying firearms than men. And to be fair, as a gun owner myself and a pretty avid shooter. One thing I know is if you're not shooting regularly, you're not all that good at it. I will say
1: that um, I used to think one way, and then I went to the shooting range and tried out a whole bunch of guns. Yeah. And you're 100% right. I was shocked at how bad a shot I was, depending on what type of gun I was using and the kickback. Sure. And I didn't even come close to now there, now there was a there was a gun that fit my hand really well, and I did better. Yeah. But some of the but some of the guns, uh, yeah, there's I you're just like there's it, no hand way
0: handguns are not excessively accurate. It is yeah, not there's what just, we there's often. No way. We don't. You know, in the movies, you see somebody take yeah. one or two shots, and exactly. the bad guy goes down in, in and like a sack of potatoes. Yeah. That's not the reality in real life. If you take a CPL class, which I have on several, well, not several, but twice, been through CPL classes. The people who have never shot a gun before, they can't hit the sheet of paper eight feet away yeah. from them half the time. Oh, it was, I, they, they, it,
1: the, uh, the paper came back, you know, we went to the range and uh, I, some of the shots, I wasn't even
0: close. Yeah. Can you imagine telling a middle school teacher, hey, by the way, your school's underfunded, you need to cover some of the expenses yourself, go in there and deal with moody kids who stayed up too late watching Netflix and, and doom scrolling, which we'll get into at some point on their phone. And by the way, we need you to make sure that your nine millimeter is fully loaded and you're ready. I I I don't see that one. I'm not I'm not totally unconvinced. I think it could be an option, but that's a much bigger pill to swallow yeah. I think for the teachers than finding a way to make sure the weapons never enter the school. Not
1: to mention the fact that I also have talked to people who have had training and even with the training when put in the situation and I talked to one person who was in that situation and this guy was that's that's what he did. He trained and everything. He froze.
0: Sure. Let's, he see froze. If, he froze. let's see if maybe we can get uh, Mike Bouchard to come on the program and, and talk about his thoughts on that yeah. because it is very, very hard to task somebody who's not incredibly comfortable with a firearm to be in charge of saving lives. And on, on that note, as these college campus rallies become a more frequent and b in my opinion, far less informed, it's, it's shocking that some of the quote unquote best and brightest at America's universities are, are rallying to the point of incurring violence. Um, for people in Gaza which they have a right they have a free speech right to say whatever they want and it's it's okay to be sad and fearful for the humanitarian part of this conflict but some of the stuff we're seeing that's turning ugly I just don't get it
1: no I mean it's uh, it's kind of crazy
0: they must been, many of them must be wildly informed, not only about the history of this entire region and how many times it's gone back and forth and the two-state solution that could have been there that wasn't. I mean, going back to Yasser Arafat, this thing has been a mess for a long, long time. You would think time.
1: that they would know that this has been going on for a, quite a while, and it probably will go on for quite a while. And there, have, they have never been, there haven't been many people that have either tried or could even make a dent. Yeah. When, because it, it all comes down to what they believe that they were promised, you know, in, you know, each of their religions. But
0: Israel's had this land given to them and taken back on so many occasions that every time they, they relinquished control to whatever faction of whether it was Hamas or any other part of the British-Palestinian contingent, they were they refused it essentially. Or they tried to do it and it fell apart. I mean, this thing's been a mess for a long, long time. The amount of students, though, that I think are out there on social media, listening to the AOCs of the world, you know, there was a clip the other day of, of her in a cute little outfit and she's cutting lemons, talking about a Halloween costume. And then also just, you know, demonizing, um, the, the process I'm going to say in Israel and what's happening to the Palestinian people in Gaza. If that's where you're getting your news from, you are wildly underinformed. And while you have a free spite, free, free speech, right to say whatever you want, you probably shouldn't. I mean, none of us should be going off and and spouting at the top of our lungs about things that we don't fully understand. I would feel sheepish in that environment. Like, I don't feel like I know enough at forty six to to have that strong of an opinion.
1: Yeah, exactly. If you're going to, uh, especially if
0: you're going to go into uh, jump in that pool, you better be ready. All right, let's talk to uh, Patrick DeHaan after the break. He's the he's the guy that can really tell us if this gas price decrease we're seeing is sustainable, what it really means and is it something we should expect to enjoy for a while i have some some extracurricular questions for him on gas too cuz that's a that that point gets me fired up back in a bit a lot of nice happy chilly halloween where kids will be uh wearing cute costumes that you can't see because of the winter coat that mom makes them wear i'm wondering if we're being uh, uh treated or tricked treated into potentially lower gas prices for the first time in a while or just tricked into thinking that this is um any kind of real relief amidst all the inflation as the old joke goes if you want to fill up on gas for less than ten dollars you just go to a taco bell and i'm not i don't hear any drums clanging for my bad joke patrick um dehan joins us uh, patrick from gas buddy head of petroleum analysis pat three dollars and 31 cents average for a regular old gallon of gasoline that's the cheapest it's been in a minute huh
7: yeah, it's uh, certainly been a while since we've seen prices this low. In fact, uh, a couple of dozen stations now in Metro Detroit are below the $3 a gallon mark. Uh, just the other day, I was in southwest Michigan in South Haven, and uh, stations there down to two eighty a gallon. So uh, huh. prices have kept dropping, uh, and, and will likely continue inching down here in the weeks ahead.
0: What is the Cliff Notes version, Patrick, of why they keep dropping amidst inflation in so many other categories?
7: Well, we've finally kind of gotten beyond the imbalances brought on by COVID. Now we're still dealing with Russia's war in Ukraine, but that's been less active. A lot of what we're seeing drive prices down today is kind of the normal seasonal trends, right? We've gotten kind of a lot of those imbalances from COVID behind us. The Russia war in Ukraine isn't really as, as active. Russia continues to produce oil, so some of the shockwaves from that have uh, died down as well, and that's uh, mm. pushed us back into kind of seasonal norms. Gas prices getting a little bit closer to what most Americans feel like normal, although I realize three dollars is still you know expensive. But uh, I see a lot more stations falling under three dollars a gallon uh, as we uh, get closer to the end of the year.
0: Yeah, so I, this is what you do for a living. You, you're a gas nerd, if you if you will, and I'm sure you hear people talk and complain and kind of just you know go around the horn about gas prices in general. What are the things that When you overhear them, you kind of roll your eyes internally and say, geez, if you guys only knew. I mean, what are the popular misconceptions about how and why gas is priced the way it is?
7: Well, kind of on both sides of the spectrum, Uh, number one, everyone blames the president, just our president. Uh, Apparently, he runs the world. Uh, But on the other side of that, too, uh, people blame oil companies for, you know, deciding uh, supply and demand. So it's both politicians getting blamed or oil companies when it's really just a function of how much you and I are filling up mm-hmm. coupled with kind of what's going on globally um, you know and we see prices fall in the fall and we're going to see them spring back up in the spring and you know I think now too by the way next year you know ahead of the presidential election I'm going to hear a lot of noise about oh prices are going down ahead of an election yeah. this is what happens generally every year as prices fall and it has everything to do with the fact that you know, I don't know about you, but here in Chicago, the snow is flying earlier this morning. I'm not going to be going out to the lake and running the boat around in the lake in the middle of winter. It has everything to do with the fact that we just don't pump as much gasoline in the winter as we do. So that economy. just is a
0: basic supply and demand issue. There's When there's less driving and yep. less fueling up, it comes down because there, there's just not as much needed?
7: Exactly. Uh, and and uh, like I said, that didn't happen in the last two years. Last year didn't happen because Europe was in an energy crunch. It was their first winter with Russia's war in Ukraine active. And so Europe was buying up as much energy as it could from anyone else but Russia. So there was something that didn't really happen so much last year in the fall. We actually saw a spike a year ago, but then Mm -hmm. prices did come down ahead of Christmas. And, of course, prices were going up in 2021. Because the economy was slowly reopening and Americans were getting back on the road. So the last time really we saw prices falling you know, as they would seasonally like this was back in 2019 prior to COVID. But this is normal. Prices hmm. fall in the fall and they go up in the spring.
0: And so, you know, listen, I apologize for the the lack of a Ph.D. gas conversation. This is more (laughs) of like a, you know, eighth grade gas conversation. But I also often think that this is what our listeners, including myself, need to hear because there's very obvious things sometimes that we talk about and we're really not that well informed. One of them would be how much discretion does any particular gas station that's owned by an individual or has a group of gas stations, how much discretion do they have over pricing?
7: It varies on a daily basis. Right now, when prices are falling, and by the way, if anyone hates prices going up more than you and me, it's the station owners because that's when they get squeezed and then they love when prices fall because they don't have to pass along the lower prices as quick. So, right now, they have more discretion because prices are trending down. How quickly they lower their prices up to them, and that's why those stations in South Haven are at 280, and that's why the state average is 326 because other stations aren't lowering their prices as quick. So, right now, Station owners have much more latitude, you know, they, they could, you know, prices uh, in Detroit or in Michigan could fall another 15 to 30 cents a gallon in a couple right. weeks ahead. And that's how much discretion they really have. And those stations in South Haven probably aren't making anything today, but they're at kind of the, the, the lowest they can go is 280. So a lot of other stations in Michigan have more latitude, but when prices go up. They really have no choice. In fact, stations are usually three to five days behind raising prices. That's how I can warn you that hey, prices are about to go up. On the flip side, I also can tell you, you know, with warning, hey, prices are about to plummet. So hold off on filling up. And it's because we see these things coming.
0: So if I if I own a little mobile station and I and I can see out my side window that the guy who has the BP down the road, you know, is five cents uh, less than me, I could, if I wanted to, chew up some of the margin that I temporarily have, drop that price in order to get more cars Mm -hmm. in there, right?
7: Yeah, absolutely. So you have that discretion as a station owner to try and resist lowering your price. But then the guy down the street might might you know pump a lot more gallons than you. So it's really what the stations are after. It's kind of like when the big box stores compete for Black Friday, right? What's their what's their motive? Why do you think they only have a hundred doorbuster TVs at that low price? Because sure. they don't want to lose their shirt, but they want to get people in the door. Gas stations very similarly. They want to get people into the station, and they also don't want to be the highest price. So it's kind of a function of both. Whatever their agenda is for that day, they may price the lowest in the market, or they might be the status quo right in the middle. And they that's, have that discretion if they want to be the lowest or not.
0: That's interesting. You may not know, but it just occurred to me that is it, is it more likely, is there any way to quantify whether this is the case? A station that doesn't sell a tremendous amount of food, chips, pops, cigarettes, the, all the normal stuff, do they tend to leave mm-hmm. prices higher because they're not getting people in to make margin on the other products on the shelves?
7: I've seen both. I've seen both where they're the lowest, where, you know, they're trying to get people to their location and they're trying to make up <clears throat> the lack of in-source sales for gasoline sales. And I've seen where they don't have anything else to sell, so they need to have a higher markup on gasoline, right, to pay yeah. their bills. So I've seen those both situations, you know, those Murphy USAs, they don't often have convenience stores attached, right? That's the Walmart that's, you know, a quarter mile away from the gas station canopy. Sometimes those Murphys don't have anything to sell, so sometimes they have a lower price. And sometimes, like Costco's, they just want you to get on the location. That's why the wholesale clubs are so great and have lowest prices, because they want you to go to their Costco to fill up, then you go inside where you spend a heck of a lot more money.
0: Sure. Okay, so uh, two more questions, and then I'll I'll leave you be with all my silly remedial gas (laughs) questions. One would be, you know, maybe I'm just a victim of having, you know, bigger cars, newer cars, whatever the case might be. But I can't remember the last time I had a car that didn't require a higher octane fuel. But we base all this pricing on regular unleaded, whether it's an 87 octane or an 89. Do we know what percentage of the fuel consumed in the U.S.? Is regular unleaded versus more premiums? Is that ratio yeah. starting to change with fuel injection and compression ratios going up, that kind of thing?
7: Yeah, it really has changed over the last 10 or 15 years. Manufacturers, because the CAFE standards, right, from the Obama era, CAFE standards basically forced manufacturers to get better fuel efficiency out of their engines. And so a lot of them did that by throwing a, a gasoline, a, a premium, but it's not really premium. It's just higher octane, which means it resists detonation. You can put more horsepower and more efficiency yeah. into an engine if you increase the octane of the fuel going into it. So, yeah, there's a lot of cars now that require premium because the manufacturers have decided, hey, we can get more fuel miles out of it. Let's you know, stick them with premium. and By the way, that's the price of premium, right? Ten years ago, it might have been 20 cents more than regular. Now it's like a dollar more than right, regular because – Demand has gone up. So that's been an evolution. Um, and I would say, roughly, it depends on where you're in the country, but here in Michigan, uh, probably about 85 to 90% of sales of gasoline are regular. But a place like California, it might be 70 to 75% is regular, very small, usually 3% mid grade, and then the rest is premium. So in Michigan, maybe 10% of what's sold is premium. Mm. California, it might be 20 or 25%. Yeah,
0: that's interesting. Well, Patrick, thanks for joining the program, as always. That's really cool stuff to know. I think this, we're, we're all victims sometimes of the stuff we don't know, but we're happy to complain about it. We're, we're back after the break with open lines and text 800-859-0957. Are you sick and tired of seeing college campuses uh, full of yelling, screaming um, <laughs> young men and women? Do you believe that we should have uh, metal detectors in our schools? Do you think we, the teachers should be armed? Are you sick of paying $3 a gallon for gas? It's better than five, but it's still quite a bit of money. Back in just a few, looking forward to calls and texts. Well, I learned a lot of stuff there about gasoline in that last eight or nine minutes with our our buddy uh, Patrick DeHaan. I didn't really know uh, some of those fairly obvious things. Maybe I'm just a, a nitwit for not knowing all that, but in general, I didn't know that gas prices went down in the fall, and perhaps I don't pay close enough attention. But I know that often you have to if you're really on a budget and you're driving a bunch. I drive a bunch because I got five kids and they're going in different directions. And, you know, I'm often down in the city, so and so forth. But um, it's nice to see them come down. Going back, by the way, um, to that the talk with, had about, with Israel, Jonathan Savage, talking about the water crisis. You know, when Obama came out, what, about a week ago and, and had a little speech and he said, listen, this could come back to haunt us, This the humanitarian part of this whole thing and, and kind of scolded Netanyahu to a degree, saying, look, you, you're... You're going about this the wrong way. That water conversation is interesting because if now they've done so much damage internally, blowing up tunnels and and sending missiles in, I mean, a lot of that water, if not all of that water, is running underground. How much of it is destroyed? If you have the better part of a million people there stuck in Gaza, many of whom obviously are innocents in terms of the actual conflict itself. Maybe they're Hamas supporters, maybe they're not, but they're men and women and children just like you and I even if they went to restore the water, if they can't get it back on, how does that work? Because pretty soon now you'll have um, people drinking dirty water because they just don't have a choice. And they're down apparently to less than a gallon a day per person at this 5% level. That is something that I think from a purely from a morality standpoint, they may look back on it and say, boy, that was a bad decision because we're going to look uh, pretty evil in the eyes of the world if people are just dying and decaying on the, you know, shriveling up on the vine without water. It's a sad thing to think about. i never really thought about it that way until uh, Mr. Savage mentioned that. Let's go to the phones. Greg in Ontario. Greg, what say you?
4: Well, I'm a 63-year-old man. Um, in my country here, we have these protests going on and it's become pretty clear to me that our colleges and universities here have become morally and intellectually bankrupt. When, when Number one, when students don't realize what they're doing, which is really amazing to me. My family is, half my family is from Russia. And, and um, I'm not out in the streets waving the Russian flag. So I ask the question, how is it that I know It wouldn't be a popular thing to do under those circumstances. And how long would I last on the streets anywhere Hmm. waving a Russian flag and supporting their cause? And then what I see here in my country as well is these protests going on. So in my mind, it's like this. You support Hamas. You you think like a terrorist. You're a danger to me and my country. Why do you bring... This here, to my soil, I was born in this country with these freedoms. There's a fine line to me when you're supporting this type of behavior, it would be like you supporting the Nazis during World War II in the streets and proudly demonstrating that you support them. there's it's not up for debate for me. There's no discussion on freedom of speech. Your freedom of speech stops when you start talking and supporting. The behavior of Hamas and any terrorist group, and, and I don't understand how society's putting up with this this long and not removing these people off the streets. Hmm. These, these kids are I, like we're, these kids are being indoctrinated or being withheld from understanding the history of things and the dangers of this. It's pathetic. Hmm. And if, wants- my chi- if my child was involved in this, I'd sit down and have a real stern talk. And number two, I go down to the university and have a talk with somebody or the college, and then I'd say, you're not getting my money anymore for my child to attend this college.
0: Kind yeah, and Greg, that, that may be what it'll take. And that's a good call, and it's an interesting call. I I think I agree with the lion's share of what you said, and you're a reasonable guy. I, 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 we've talked before. One yeah. of the things that I think we have to do as parents, to a large degree, is essentially demand that what's being taught at the schools foundationally is how to make your own opinion from an educated standpoint. If you have activist professors and the kids are already on what I would consider to be very activist-oriented social media, that's where they get most of their news, on their Twitter, their Twitter, Instagram, all these little echo chambers that they live in. It's a sad thing to witness, especially when there's so much hurt in the world already. Great, thanks for the call. You know, Rieger, I have no, no qualms at all with people who who call for peace in the region. If someone says, I'm just going to pray for peace in that region. That is one of the most reasonable things a human being can say.
1: I would agree with you on that.
0: Yeah. If I have two, if there's two guys down the block from me who lived there far before I got there and they've been fighting over who's, you know, the, the who's p- the pine tree, whose lands on, is it on your land or my land. And they want to go to war over that. At some point I have to go, you know what? You guys figure it out. It's not, I'll, I'll be down here. And it may be the case that I have a barbecue with Bob instead of Joe and I like Bob and we got kids in the same grade and we share a beer and I like Bob, but I can't really take Bob's side. In this particular case, we have to take largely Israel's side, not only because they're an ally of ours, but because historically they've held a much higher moral ground in this whole thing. But when it comes to the students, I find that to be, and I think you'll agree with this, so ironic. How can you, have, at that age, everyone wants to be an activist for something, right? Everyone has an opinion. that' the smartest person in the room from like 18 to 27, right? And they also, everyone's a liberal until they move out of their parents' basement and have to pay taxes and their own bills. <laughs> but the reality, when you have, like, why, all, these women, the same women who are crying, you know, for equal pay, right? Equal rights, equal speech. There's no women's rights in that part of Palestine. No, their heads are wrapped up. They're forced to just make babies and sit inside a room. Correct. What about all the all the very? I wouldn't say the word normal is probably going to get me in trouble. But let's just talk the the regular old garden variety. What they call a normie, right? Which is a, a normal person, which is now a bad thing. Apparently, I'm a normie, so I'm a nobody you know the average heterosexual caucasian person who's at a at a university who's rallying and holding up signs for the LBGTQA, whatever community with at the top of their lungs with with every fiber of their being this is so important to them those same lgbtqa whatever they would be tossed off roofs locked in cages all of the all of the civil slash human rights that they fight for here that they say unequivocally that they're being you know that the, the u s does such a horrible job of giving everyone the same rights over there they have no rights. you know where you do have those rights Israel correct right there's yeah. Palestinian gays and lesbians that have fled to israel it's a morally bankrupt in in some it's probably an overstatement to a degree because I don't think the people themselves this is my opinion. Certainly, folks may disagree. I don't think the people themselves are morally bankrupt. I think they're just horribly, horribly misguided. It's not really their business in the first place. I mean, I think that, you
1: know, I think you're right. I think that, you know, people go through changes, and they go through changes of their thoughts and changes of feelings. And I think that uh, what you said earlier, I think that if, uh, if I think if we were more informed, yeah. it would make a, a little bit of a difference with the type of um, you know maybe the anger yeah. that people get because maybe if they understood a little bit more of what was actually going on, then they necessarily sure. they wouldn't have they would be so. And angry. Dave, I
0: think we'll get you. You and I need to buckle down on this and get into the social media nightmare tomorrow. We were looking at a piece earlier, folks, that, yeah. about what they call doom scrolling. Yeah, doom scrolling, yeah. Right, this idea that often there's almost a a sinister plot to keep you on these phones scrolling and scrolling the same way we talked about when you go to find a movie. And there's so many choices that you end up just scrolling through movies for half an hour and you can't even find one that you want to watch. I've done that myself. In fact, my wife always laughs when I say, let's find a movie. She goes, you'll never find one. You'll just right. you know, watch 10 trailers and they'll say, you know what? The heck with Let's just go to bed. But is the social media environment that is wildly unregulated, largely untrue, full of deep fakes and, and put together clips, is this to blame largely for the most vile parts of misinformation in that kind of call it 15 to 30 age group community if you're getting most of your news from youtube from twitter from instagram and it's it's not only visually untrue many of these clips we just saw someone post a clip not that long ago of beheaded babies right turns out those babies weren't even beheaded that was from like seven years ago
1: here's the question for you Okay, and I don't know, this might not be you, but it might be society on a whole. Where's the first place you go when there's breaking news? Where's the first place you go when you hear there's breaking news?
0: I know you're going to say Twitter.
1: I'm gonna say ninety five percent of the world goes to X, Twitter.
0: A Twitter, yeah, X. Yeah. I don't I don't have that. Okay. I, I refuse. I boycotted all of it about four years ago. But but, but
1: Twitter do but Twitter is now an acceptable Place. I mean, you you watch television. I mean, it's on. You you find a person who is verified, and it is an acceptable. Wait, if it's not called
0: Twitter anymore, are people X. not tweeting?
1: They're Xing. They. I don't know if they found out. I don't know if they have a different name for the tweets. I think they still say tweets,
0: but it is X. Well, oh, we're getting into the weeds. I guess the yeah. question but, but, but would my question,
1: be... but my question to you, so so you're not going to. But I would say most people are going to social media, whether it's right, right or wrong. Most people are going to social media for to find out the information.
0: Yeah. Well, let's get into that tomorrow. Maybe that maybe we need to form a revolt. Let's go back to old-fashioned news sources. We'll be back after the break. Well, hi everybody. We're at the 5-yard line of the focus hour. Filling in for Paul W called in kind of at the last minute, but I hope we uh, we had a good show for you today. Lots of lively conversation, some fun stuff, learned a little bit about gas. Good update on Israel. UAW came together. The Lions won. And the last thing on our agenda today is a talk about spending. U.S. consumers are spending increasingly more and more despite what the economists say is a gloomy outlook across the board. I can tell you that I see that with my clients. Everyone really is fearful of a recession. It seems like you look out every economic looking glass and it looks like there's a storm out there. But Andrea Bitely joins us, a vice president of Michigan Retailers Association. Andrea, thanks for joining today. Why are people spending and spending and spending while they think it's going to crash? Uh, well,
8: one of those big things is inflation. Um, is your dollar worth the same now as it will be in two weeks? Um, well, is the price cheaper now than it will be in a month? Um, if someone, you know, needs or wants something, they're going to go get it now with the fear that it could get more expensive.
0: Yeah, how do you guys and let's have a let's have a, a good remedial conversation again. I've been doing this a lot today. When we talk about spending and you guys are really responsible for kind of putting that in a wrapper and studying all the statistics, is it separated at all between need based spending and desire based spending?
8: That's a good question. And we do look at, you know, people going to the grocery store. And we also look at someone headed to a two way clothing retailer, gift shop. Um, in the end, those numbers all sort of work together, though, because you need the bread and the eggs and the milk, but you might also need the new pair of shoes for your kid to uh, participate in gym class. Hmm. So they all end up lumping together, and maybe you pick the less expensive pair of shoes or the less expensive type of bread. It All of it feeds into one economy, and it all works together as we go through the ups and downs and roller coaster that retail have had this year.
0: So what i hear you saying is it's pretty linear across all the different categories that you guys measure, right? It is. But mm-hmm. it, as inflation has kind of gone up, even the regular garden variety things have have gotten more expensive. Are people spending more of their actual budget on a percentage basis than they have in the past? A lot of folks tucked some more money away and built up a little bit of a modest nest egg during COVID because they weren't sure what to expect. Is some of that now just being evacuated into the market?
8: So some of it is credit card spending. People are turning towards their credit cards. Um, and part of that is because they, people did get those you know, extra checks during the pandemic, but a lot of that has been depleted. So they are turning towards credit cards um, and tapping into their savings more and more.
0: Is there any categories, you know, Andrea, from a Michigan-specific standpoint, any categories that are are succeeding more than others or unexpectedly more than others?
8: Uh, We've had some really good years in a few different areas. Um, Groceries are still number one retail purchase for Michigan residents. Um, We did see a bit of a hit to our travel industry this year, so that means those cute little downtowns on the west coast of Michigan or up north didn't see quite as much traffic as they're used to. So um, as people are planning their winter escapes, maybe consider doing a little travel here in the state of Michigan.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. The the travel industry obviously got plowed by COVID. Is there any other of those kind of factions within um, Michigan that were really hurt by COVID that have bounced back more so than getting back to their, their average? I mean, something that now is excessively being overbought, um, maybe as a byproduct of people rallying back to it?
8: Yeah, no, I can't think of something in particular that has really changed. Um, people are obviously, you know, back to that spending um, with the knowledge that there is a slight change in our economies, you know, our recession, et cetera, et cetera. People are getting out there on experiences more, but again, we are, you know, seeing a little bit of a down downturn in that travel for this summer. Now, some of that could be people had an opportunity to travel out of state, um, and congrats to them. But don't forget about us uh, up here in, in northern Michigan, as well as you know, the West Coast. Uh, Lake Michigan's shore
0: and Lake Huron shores. Yeah, well said. Andrea, thanks for the update. We'll look forward to hearing back from you as we get into the the Christmas, uh, the Santa Claus rally, as we often call it in, oh, yeah. in, in my business. And that's good news, I guess, for a little bit of everybody. Dave, uh, are you spending more money on anything besides uh, Denver Broncos gear and the occasional trip to the casino?
1: Well, I have not been uh, buying any gear lately for the Denver Broncos because they haven't been that good yeah, to be honest with you, but um, no, no, really. Uh, I think that um, you know, I uh, we really don't do a lot of, um, I don't know, like gift giving. You know, just for like my nieces and that. You know, we don't yeah. really do like but with my brother or stuff like that for the holidays. Well, listen, so.
0: anecdotally, I can tell you that when you talk to to retirement type people that I, that I talk to every single day. I don't care what the data says, and I have money managers all around me that are constantly eternal optimists. I mean, all the, the fundamental numbers look good. All these lights are green in the stock market, and they expect economic growth and expansion throughout the, the, um, the last quarter, you know, through, especially through the holiday season. But when everybody's attitude is, this thing is going to implode at some point. we got a war in Israel. we got a war in Ukraine. We have a presidential election coming up, and I won't even try to to begin to mock how, what a circus that seems like it's going to be. Yeah. But if people are really spending like this, there's, that means on the other side of that, there's a bit of a reckoning coming. You can't, you can't just eat all the food in the pantry and then when there's a drought, say I'm starving, what do I do? Right, Government bail me out. It is Mm -hmm. a strange paradigm to hear that spending is up to that degree, especially on credit cards. I mean, you're, that's, you're borrowing money from the, um, (laughs) from the loan sharks. Credit card,
1: fair. Cre- credit card, that's, a, that, that, and you can get this, you can get some trouble. Those, the, those interest rates that, that the credit cards charge, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's it's
0: borderline criminal. Yeah. And I know there's a case to be made for the folks who use a credit card for, you know, Delta points or something like that. Costco well, they, a, well they,
1: they, they, you know, they offer, they offer all these perks, yeah. you know, that you get, um you know, miles or you get, sure. you know, percentage or you get cash back and they're just asking you, you know, the credit cards almost, they, they want you to get into trouble. Sure. I, I,
0: they almost, I mean, it's almost like they want you to get, if, if you pay off everything every month, then, then they don't like that. Well, I would, yeah, you would have to assume without demonizing them in particular, because I don't know all the ins and outs, but I mean, they have to, the favorite customer of them has to be the, the person who overspends. Is undisciplined and says, "You know what? I'll just pay the minimum this month." And before right. you know it, that's a rolling snowball that turns into an avalanche. Yeah,
1: and you get you get buried.
0: You can't get out from underneath it. There is, of course, a great many people who are incredibly disciplined, and they put everything each month on a credit card. They pay it off at the end of the month. Right. Their credit score is seven fifty, and then they fly for free. Listen, you ever try to buy a car lately?
1: You got to have you got to have a high credit score. Otherwise, good luck.
0: Yeah, the whole thing can be a mess. Like I'll be back in for Paul tomorrow while he gets himself all healed up and back to work. Um, We're going to have a lot of fun stuff on the menu tomorrow, so don't miss. Thanks for having me, Michigan. We'll see you in 24 hours.